Well, good morning, um, everybody. I'm so glad to be like here with you. It's nice to you know take like a special day like Mother's Day and kind of have that special uh, time together. And this morning, what we're going to do, as always, is we're going to open up the Word of God together. And um, because I care so deeply about what you want, especially on Mother's Day, I want to give you what you want. We have a sermon on the end times and judgment this morning, okay? So um, I, I learned early on, you just give the people what they want, and so here we go, um, a, a Mother's Day eschatology sermon, okay? I know that's what you guys were hoping for. Um, it's just where we are in First Thessalonians, and um, so if you have your Bible, you can open to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, last week, we went through, and, and Paul was talking about uh, the question of wh- what happens to those that we love and that we've lost. And last week was this just beautiful reminder, this beautiful invitation to consider, okay, those that, that have died in the Lord, right, with that connection to the Lord, those that we've lost, that we're grieving the heart, like our heart's been ripped out of our chest, what do we think about those? And he talks about this beautiful day that the Lord returns to be with us, and when he does come to be with us, he brings with him those that we've lost. And there's this beautiful reunion scene. Um, this morning, in the passage we're going to look at, the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul continues on in that, and he talks about now what, what will happen on that day, the, the fuller, bigger picture, and it's heavier than last week's was, um, but it's nonetheless, it's so needed, it's so important, it's such a good reminder for us. So I'm going to jump into the first couple of verses here. Paul says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So here's this, uh, this statement, and we had one of these earlier where Paul says, like, concerning this, you don't need me to write anything to you. So um, he said that earlier, if you remember, about love, okay? He says, concerning brotherly and sisterly love, he says, you don't need me to write anything to you. Why? Because you're doing it, right? He looks at this community and says, you guys are so full of love for each other, I don't need to write with any instructions to you about it. All I can say is just keep doing that more and more, Okay? Now he's getting into, he's, he's brought up the topic of um, what happens at the end and we'll be reuni- reunited to those we've lost. And he says, look, about all this stuff, you don't need me to write anything to you. Why? Why do they not need anything written? Because, he says in verse 2, because you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I, I like Paul's logic here because I think what he's saying is, you don't need me to give you instructions about what's going to happen at the end because it's going to be a total surprise to everybody, okay? Like, expect it to be a surprise. It will be a surprise, and that's as it should be. So I don't need to instruct you because it's going to be a surprise, and you know that, so I don't need to instruct you on it. What he's talking about here is he calls it the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, if you could do like a a Google search for the day of the Lord, it is um, a frequent theme throughout Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, reference after reference after reference to the day of the Lord. And the idea of the day of the Lord is uh, everything goes on in life, okay? And we love God. We try to follow him. There's also a lot of wickedness in the world, in our, in our own hearts. But there's going to come a day, the day of the Lord, when he suddenly reappears and he's going to just set everything right. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of justice. It's a day of kind of everything being fixed and solved and, and those kinds of things. Here's a few references from the Old Testament about that. In, in Isaiah 13, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from Almighty, it will come. Ezekiel 30, he talks about, Wail, alas for the day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel chapter 2, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? 
Okay, so day of the Lord is like not a happy thought typically, okay? It's brought in to say, now it's, it's relief, right, for those that are like being oppressed. So when the nations are oppressing or when there's people that are like living in wickedness and you're sitting here and you're the recipient, the, the oppressed person in that, the day of the Lord is welcome, right? Because it's saying all of this evil that's happening, God's going to come and he's going to fix it. And it's a day that like those that are opposing God want nothing to do with because he's going to fix it. And I love the, the way that Joel ends here. I just picked a few representative samples of how the day of the Lord is talked about. Here it is, the end of Joel. He says, who can endure this awesome day? And he says, but even now, return to me with all of your heart. So even in these warnings of the day of the Lord coming, the day when justice is finally served, there's still, even within that, there is this invitation, come and return to me. I want you with me. I don't want you to experience this in a negative way. I want you back. So all of this, uh, Isaiah, uh, or sorry, First uh, Thessalonians is talking about all of it is this reminder. You don't even need to tell you about anything about the day, day of the Lord because it's just going to come like a thief. It's going to come like a shock. And so he's talking about what's going to happen at the very end. Now, I said last time a little word on the timing, and I, I feel like I want to just kind of repeat that again. The timing of this um, is like this big question mark. And, and I feel like for many of us, the timing is like an exclamation point. It's where we like do a lot of our fighting as church people. Um, we, we've like, uh, we've developed these different camps. So there's, there's premillennials, there's amillennials, there's, there's um, pre-trib, post-trib. Like there's all these different u- words we use to talk about the exact timing of these things that were promised. Like when the Lord comes back, this is what it will look like and here's the timing. And we kind of get into camps and we fight about it. Um, I like the one that my seminary professor told me about, which is pan-millennial, which means it's all just going to pan out in the end, okay? So I feel like, um, I, I feel like so I just want to say there's, there's room for everybody in here. If you, have a, if you have, like, worked this out and you've done your homework um, and you're like, I, I feel like I see it all fitting together like this, okay, um, that's great. There's room for you. My own kind of approach to this is I, I, I like what I like, what I call eschatological minimalism, okay? And it's just an idea that I made up, but it's just the idea that when we comes to the, the eschatology, the end times stuff, I like to be a minimalist with it, okay? And I don't like to be the, the crazy, insane person with like the threads going here and here and the chart and the timeline and the newspapers. Like, I like to just be minimalist with it and ask, okay, what is this passage actually saying? What are the details described? That's important, right? And then ask, what's the purpose of each passage, okay? So not just what are the details and how can I map it, but also why was this written to us, okay? And last week I said, Paul never wrote any theology textbooks, even though we think he did. What he did was he wrote pastoral letters. And so last week when it talked about um, Jesus descending from the clouds and he's bringing the, the, the saints that have died with him and we go and meet him in the air and we said we could, we could argue over timing and we could argue over like uh, method and um, strategy and all that kind of stuff. But what really is saying, he ends that section just saying, encourage each other with these words, okay? So the point, right? So there's the details about what happens, but there's the point, which is be encouraged. That's the whole point. Today, he's going to end with something similar. And so as we look at this, um, this experience at the end, remember, Paul is talking to this little church in Thessalonica, young little church, and, um, and they're there, and they're experiencing persecution from the outside. And so Paul's writing this not to make sure they can be Bible scholars, but he's writing this to make sure that they have the encouragement and the hope and a call to live a certain sort of a way now. And so we ought to keep that in mind as we go through. One thing, like, the Bible says a lot about the end times. One thing it says consistently and clearly from beginning to end is that we will not know when it's going to happen, okay? 
Now, that warning has been um, across the board. It's, it's throughout Scripture. Everybody knows that, right? But it is shocking to me how often we get to the point of like, yeah, I, I know we're not going to know like the day of the hour, but like you got to be aware of like the, the signs and, you know, and we kind of like ease ourselves into that. And so I just want to step back and say, hey, just a reminder, the one thing it says clearly is you're not going to know. So if you think that you know, you're wrong, okay? You don't know. And, uh, and, and what it says, like throughout Scripture, we're called to be ready for the day of the Lord. We're called to be ready for this. Why? Not because we're going to know the time, but we're called to be ready always because we don't know the time. That's literally the reason it gives. So now, what's Paul going to say about it? We're going to go into the next few verses here. This is what's going to happen when the Lord returns. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. See, I do have something for Mother's Day for you here. (laughs) And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you were all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober." For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Um, And I'm stopping there. I want to pause right there for a minute. So Paul's saying all this, okay, and he kind of uses three analogies. He piles them up, okay? So there's this idea of people are saying peace and safety, and then there's sudden destruction. It gives the idea of like a, a military siege that comes all of a sudden, okay? So there's this siege mentality. Um, there's a, there's labor pains are being used, uh, in this picture. Um, and there's the idea of like this sleep that's coming and he's using all of these, um, pictures, kind of stacking them up. And the whole point of it all is he's trying to get us to feel a sense of urgency. Okay. The, the world is going to end. The Lord is going to come, come back. So feel a sense of urgency again, not because we know when it's going to happen, but precisely because we don't know, feel urgent about it. The idea, he says, people are going to be sitting there saying, there's peace and there's security. And he says, that, like, that is it. That's the dangerous, the wrong mentality of everything's good, everything's fine. In the Roman Empire, when Paul was writing this, uh, that was one of their slogans, peace and safety. You know, come, come live in Rome where there's peace and safety. And of course, we know ultimately that peace and that safety didn't last. Um, he might also here be referencing Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah sent to the people of Israel that have been going away from the Lord. And, and he says, basically, everyone is sitting there saying, peace, peace. But actually, he says, there is no peace because you're separated from the Lord. And there's this reminder, this warning against the wrath of God. A, rem- a reminder, a warning to God's own people, right? The people that are calling themselves by God's name, that's always where the idea of judgment and warning against it comes first. And so there's this um, idea of peace and security, and then sudden destruction comes. We're we're given this picture of there's life that's promised and there's destruction. That's the two choices that he gives. Um, And he's saying, be awake, be urgent, right? And so it comes, that sudden destruction, it comes like labor pains come upon a woman, okay? So let let me on Mother's Day explain labor pains um, to you ladies, okay? (laughs) Um, The idea is, right, there's pain, okay? There's intense pain. This is how I understand it, and I've seen it, like, in close proximity, okay? The pain comes, and the pain is meant to alert you to something, right? Something is um, not necessarily wrong, but something important is happening, okay? And so you've got to take, take it seriously. When that, when that labor pain comes, you take it seriously. You don't want to be like my, my brother-in-law, okay? When, when, uh, when his wife went into labor, um, it was like, whew, labor pains, this is happening, right? And so what he did is he went and poured himself a bowl of cereal, and, you know, he's getting ready. Okay, all right, all right we'll just kind of get through this. Um, she, you know, his wife gets him into the car, but he's eating the cereal while he's driving, which I wouldn't recommend under the best of circumstances. And eventually they get to the hospital and they have a baby and everything's fine. But what you're supposed to do is what I did, okay, which is 
the first hint of anything, right? Of anything, you're like, let's get in the car. Maybe we should like rent an apartment next to the hospital so that we're like there and ready, you know? How long will they let us stay in advance? Like you, you do not want to mess around with labor pains. And so the idea is the suddenness of it and you take it seriously. It's urgent, it's important. He's calling us to treat it like something urgent and important because there is this time that's coming and we're not gonna know when. So we gotta be living in readiness. Now, the alternative here, he's saying, he gives these pictures of um, living in the darkness, right? People that sleep, sleep at night, people who are drunk or drunk at night, but we're not people of the darkness, we're people of the day. So there's this reminder that in the world we, we live in is kind of like this dark place, right? It's a world living in darkness. And we, we say that a lot, but I don't know that we think through, what, is it, what does it mean that the world is in darkness? Does it, does it just mean that like everybody out there is turning more democratic, and so that's the dark world. I don't think so. I think he's talking about a world that is structuring and ordering itself um, away from, like, away from the light of God. So think of the light of God as, like, the knowledge of God and, and the, the awareness of the ways of God, okay? Like, that's what the light is, and he's saying the world is living in darkness. They're, they're cutting themselves off. They're shading themselves from the knowledge of God, the ways of God, and we're going more and more as a society, and honestly, like, all of us are part of this, away further and further from the design and the knowledge and the light of God. And there's a thousand examples we could give, okay? It could be things like, think of like our view, our modern view of sexuality, okay? And we're so enlightened that we know like sex within marriage is old-fashioned and everything, and so it, it should be used like this, right? It's fine to do it like this, but what we see is as we get further down that path of kind of away from the light of God and into our own decisions about what it looks like, we see how it hurts and it breaks apart everything, Right? Think of any romantic comedy. The whole thing is about how, like, really our sexual selves are meant to be, like, intimacy and, and commitment and marriage. But the comedy in a romantic comedy comes because one person thinks it's serious and the other person doesn't, right? And there's all this brokenness and there's all this um, pain that we experience because we walk away from it. Um, abortion is back in the headlines, right? And when we take our um, eyes off of God's design, right? And we start tinkering with, oh, who's really a person anyways? And we get down this line, it causes all this pain. And it's certain in all these things, of course, there's the grace of God just flowing through all of it. But what we see, I think the idea of living in darkness is kind of cutting ourselves off from the will of God. Now, those are big societal things. I think it comes also in a way in our own lives, in our own hearts, right? As we sort of give vent to our own anger, right? As we indulge our own lust through pornography and things like that. There's all this shutting ourselves off to the light and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And we start living in these paths. And he's saying, you're just, you're living like people of the night. You're living in this darkness. And yes, you're functioning. But when we go against God's design, we experience this harm. It's like we're living in this world that is asleep right now. That, one of my favorite bands is The National. They have this song where they says, we're half awake in a fake empire. And I, I feel like that describes so well the world around us. You're just half awake, right? We're living in this world. I feel like it actually is a pretty good description of the church as well. Meant to be living together in this community, experiencing the light and the life of the Lord. But we kind of put ourselves to sleep as well and we keep going along. And so nighttime, he's giving, using this description, darkness and nighttime. Nighttime is the, people that, people, the time that people sleep, the time that people um, get drunk, you know. Um, other people, not you guys, of course. And, uh, and so the, the, it's like, you know, in the daytime, we're working, right? Daytime, we're creating, we're collaborating, right? We're, we're like working together in the daytime. But at nighttime, you can't work as much. And so it's, it's more about relaxing. There's nothing really important going on anyways at nighttime. So we're going to sleep, right? Or we're going to get together. We're going to party. We're going to... Um, Drink, and so he's just saying, don't live like that. Don't live in the night. 
don't, like sleeping basically is saying it doesn't matter, right? There's nothing urgent happening, so I can rest now. And trust me, I, like, I believe in sleep. It's super important. I didn't get enough of it last night, and I'm feeling it right now. Coffee's helping, right? But, um, but sleeping is basically saying there's nothing that urgent to do. So as much as I believe in sleep, and I think it's important, and we do need to all rest, right? There's times when you're just like, I like literally cannot sleep, okay? When I was, when I was uh, teaching college classes, I got to prepare a class on the book of Revelation. And I will tell you, I never slept the night before that class because I was creating this thing as I went, and there's always just so much more to dig into. So you're, you're saying there's something happening that matters, and I'm going to give up my sleep to invest in this, right? There was another time we were down, uh, uh, living down south, and um, we were kind of doing a few things to work on our house, and we decided that we wanted our front door to be white, okay? And it was like a stained brown door. And I didn't, you know, I thought, how hard can it be to paint a door? But you just don't know what you're doing when you don't know what you're doing. So I'm just putting the paint straight on the, the shellac or whatever, and just, man, white paint and just that stain just comes through like you wouldn't believe. And so I started early and, but man, like so many coats of paint on this door to try to get it white. And it was getting worse and worse. And of course it gets darker and darker. At 6 p.m. I'm just like, man, I can't do any more. And so I went to bed and we just left the front door off. No, I'm just kidding. You would never do that, right? I stayed up all, literally all night putting coats of paint on this because we had no front door on the door. It was just wide open. And there's some things that are more important than sleep, right? There's an urgency. There's a sense of I'm not okay with whatever or whoever could be walking in this door. There was a night we had like possums show up at our house. I'm like, I do not want a possum in my house. So I, I worked in front of the door. I guarded it and everything. The, the whole point is, yeah, sleeping is for people that don't have a sense of urgency, right? Sleeping is great, right? But you only can sleep when there's not this sense of danger, urgency, immediacy, importance to a situation. And so I think his whole call is, don't be asleep, be awake. There's something urgent happening. There's something important that's happening in this world. Let's pay attention to what's coming. Now, what is coming? So it's the day of the Lord, okay? The day of the Lord is this important day, and it's the Lord's return. Last week, we looked at the return of the Lord in the most beautiful light possible, right? He's coming to be with us, right? He's coming to heal our wounds. He's coming to bring with him those who have already died and to reunite us. So last week, for those of us that are like in the Lord, connected to him, have our faith in Jesus, we have our allegiance and this connection and this forgiveness that we experience in him, the return of the Lord is this beautiful sight. This week, he's shifting the metaphor a little bit. And the return of the Lord becomes a much scarier thing. It becomes a much heavier thing, and he's saying, don't let it surprise you, because if the day of the Lord surprises you, if the return of the Lord is something that you're not greeting with open arms, he's saying it's going to be more uh, difficult, more terrifying than you can imagine. And so he talks about, he talks about the wrath of God in this passage, the, the anger of the Lord against sin, against destruction, and he talks about the idea of, he says, sudden destruction. So it's, 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 uh, it's not good. And I will tell you, it's not my favorite topic to preach on, okay? Um, you know, we don't get that many wrath of God sermons, but when it's in the text, right, I think we have to talk about it. When God talks about it, we have to talk about it. And so the idea of the judgment of God, it always feels harsh to me, right? Like, God, couldn't you just, like, work it all out, like, in a nice way, you know? I feel like that would be, if I was in charge, that's what would happen. It would be a much different kind of a universe and ultimately would not end in justice because my soft, bleeding Mr. Rogers heart, right, would not say and do the hard things that are needed. And I was thinking about it this week, like, what, what, do I, what am I picturing with all this? I think the big, the big point of it all is, at the end of the day, this life and what we do and how we live and this, this world that God created, all of it is way too important for God to simply say, it doesn't really matter what you do, just kind of do whatever, right? 
And I think he's saying to us, this life and all of everything we're living is way too important for us to say that either. To say, you know what, it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to do kind of whatever and everyone can do whatever. He's saying this life matters so much that the way that we relate to God now, it matters. And it will matter forever. And so I was picturing this, um, th- this like, scenario in my mind of like, how, like in what framework does some idea of, of judgment, of destruction, where does that actually make sense with what I know about God? And I began to picture it less like a doctrine where God's like making rules about who's in and who's out and how he's getting super upset at these people and so he's going to get his vengeance on them. I began to picture it more as a story, okay? And so picture this with me. There's God and he creates a, a beautiful island, okay? And on the island, there's all this vegetation, there's all these animals, and it's like this ideal place for people just to live in this beauty. Picture God making all that, okay? And then in the midst of that, picture people in that world that begin tinkering with the natural order and tinkering with the way things are designed, and they begin to bring back to life uh, raptors and T-Rexes, okay? And yes, I'm describing uh, Jurassic Park and the world of that, okay? So just picture how beautiful Isla Nublar could have been, right? And, uh, and into the midst of that, there's these people that are total boneheads that are creating dinosaurs again, and they're in, 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 you know, inviting them to live in the same place as people. And what happens? The people always get eaten, okay? It just is going to happen. And so I picture that. This is God's paradise, and here's these people that have introduced this, like, destructive force into it. And, and is it okay in some setting? Does it make sense to our sense of justice on some level for God to be like, you know what? There really shouldn't be any raptors in here eating people, right? If this is going to be paradise that I want people to enjoy, we really shouldn't have these destructive forces loose in there, right? And then I think the hardest part for me of the idea of God's judgment, it makes sense for me, like, the, the demonic forces, the, the, the curse, all the things that are breaking the world apart— But is there any spot for, the hardest part for me is the idea that God's going to look at individual people and say, um, no, you are going to experience destruction. You're not going to experience joy with me forever. You're going to experience destruction. I think, is it okay for God in his justice to look at people, the the scientists that are creating the raptors and that are making T-Rexes bigger and bigger and meaner every year, even one of the movies, I think they they splice the raptors and the T-Rexes, I think, crazy. And so for him to look at, at these people that are perpetuating this evil, right, and say, no, I am removing you from this. Is there a place for punishment? Is there a place for all that? Now, I, I say that, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, I can get my logic to a place where I can say, yeah, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense to me, right, to remove the destruction out. And there's still a side of my heart that's like, ah, I just wish, like, couldn't God just, like, fix them? Couldn't God just, like, heal them? Couldn't God just remediate them? But then I have to step back and think, okay, that's what makes sense to me, okay? But do I think, actually, that I know justice better than God himself? There's no way. There's no way that my sense of justice and right and wrong is more finely attuned than God's. And so whose better hand, whose hands better to leave it in uh, than God himself who created us, who loves us, who, um, who invites us in? And so the, the, the reminder for me is, okay, what is this passage doing? This passage is not here to make us feel bad about undergoing destruction. This passage is literally here as a warning. It's literally here as an invitation to say, look, this is what is coming. So, so nobody's being thrown under the bus here where God's like, boy, they're going to go about their happy lives and everything's going to be great. And then at the last second, bam, I'm coming in and I'm tricking them into destruction. Like that's not what God's doing here. What God is doing is saying, look, Paul, go tell them, warn them about this fact that like, man, when they, are, when they are separating themselves from me, when they refuse to accept the healing that I am constantly inviting them into, when they're putting themselves against that, 
warn them that this is where this heads, right? This is where this leads, that I'm creating a new world, a new heavens and a new earth in which there is no pain, there's no death, there's no evil. And so things that are painful and death-inducing and evil are not going to be present in that place. So remind them, call them, beg them, come in and experience the grace and healing and holiness that I'm offering them and keep doing that more and more and more as time goes on because the more everybody needs to hear this. Everybody needs to accept and hear this invitation where I'm inviting them in to experience healing. To, to me, when I kind of step back and I'm reminded that even these harsher passages, there's, there's literally not a harsh passage in the Bible about judgment that's not written as an invitation for us to see the love and grace of God and experience it ourselves. There's no one that's being cast off. They're all being invited in, and the problem comes when people refuse to do that. And so here's all Paul's saying with this. Darkness and light, right? Darkness and light. And there's this invitation. Don't live as children of the darkness. See that there is this light. Live according to the ways of God and see that God is doing something in the midst of this world. Now, he's going to call us. Okay, so what does it look like for us to live as children of the day? What does it look like for us to be sober? What does it look like for us to be ready for the Lord's return? Okay, if we did a poll of like, what would it look like? I have a, I have a feeling. Okay, if we all wrote our little essay on what does it look like to be ready for the Lord's return, There'd be a lot of references to left-behind fiction uh, writing, okay? And so we know, like, man, if that guy Nikolai shows up, like, I'm on it, okay? And you have all these, like, from the fictional series left behind, we have this kind of, it's shaped our imagination in a certain way, and we kind of know what we're expecting and looking for. But let's look at what Paul says. So Paul's writing this letter to say, the day of the Lord's coming, and there's judgment, and there's end times, and he's going to come back. You need to be ready for it, and here's what it means for you to be ready for it. And he says it in one sentence in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what do we do? The end times are coming. The end's coming. So put on your armor, right? There's a battle. Put on your armor. Get yourself ready. And what does that armor look like, okay? We might think, based on left behind, we might think that it looks like, okay, let's arm ourselves, right? Let's get our survival skills honed in. Let's get our, uh, like, the lecture on hand that we're going to give people about the end times and all that. Like, but he doesn't say any of that stuff, right? He doesn't say be a survivalist. He doesn't say, like, read the newspapers more carefully. What he says is the day is coming, and we've got to live sober, and that looks like this. Put in your armor. And what is your armor? It is faith, it is love, and it is hope. Isn't that remarkable? What does God want us to do so that we can be ready for when he returns, live in faith and hope and love? I mean, it's remarkable. He's been saying that from the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. There's a few times where he gives those three things, faith, hope, and love, right? 1 Corinthians 13 ends with this picture of what are the most important things, faith, hope, and love. And so the call for us and the way that you can be the best, like end times scholar and prepper person is to live your life now in faith and hope, and love. It's this picture of us sort of living our lives now according to the values of the kingdom of God, so that when Jesus shows up, we're just saying, God, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here because I've been living in this faith, and hope, and love, and ready for you to come, and I'm so glad to have you um, here. We're living now like we would, um, like we'd be proud to when he came back. I think it's super important to see. I'm, I'm, I was thinking about this, so, so let's just say that you're um, you're with your family, and you're living in your house and everything, and then you're, um, you decide, you know what, I think it's time for us to have our mother-in-law come and live with us, which, like, let's, would be a treat, right? It would be a real treat. It would be for me, at least, um, to have your mother-in-law come and live with you. Um, but you might, you might look at your family, and you might say, hey, guys, we're going to have to do things a little bit different. We're going to have to change our lifestyle a bit because, you know, grandma's coming to live with us here. It's going to change the way that we do things some, Right? 
I think Paul's point is to say, if we were living our lives and then we knew Jesus was coming to move in, we want to be living now in such a way that we wouldn't have to say, hey guys, we got to change our lifestyle some because Jesus is going to come live here, right? Live in a way that we'd be proud and ready to just say, yes, Jesus, come live with us. We've been waiting for this. We've been longing for this. That's how we've been conducting ourselves now. And I don't think that means like over-spiritualizing it. I have a, um, I have a friend that, that has this story about his, um, his grandma where she was like the most spiritual person in the world, like praying all the time, um, talk to anybody about Jesus, uh, care for people all the time. Um, but they were, they were at like a, a play and it was a great play. Everything was great. But at intermission, she just looked troubled, you know, and he says like, um, grandma, what's like, what's wrong, you know? And she says, ah, can we, can we leave? He's like, are you not liking the play? No, I love the play, but um, if Jesus comes back, this isn't where I want to be. Like, this isn't what I want to find, you know? And um, so I think, man, how great, right? To be like living ready for the Lord to return, to have that even be a consideration with a play that's beautiful, right? But I think the point is not, make sure that when Jesus comes back, he doesn't find you enjoying yourself, right? Make sure that Jesus, when he comes back, doesn't see you like appreciating what other people are, are creating in a way that causes human flourishing. I think the actual call is, man, wherever we are, whether you're at a play, you're at, you're at your work, you're in, in a church service, like wherever you are, um, be like living in such a way that, man, it's just a joy to see Jesus walk into that room and to say, yes, I'm so glad that you're here and that I can experience all this with you. Like that is ultimately what Jesus is promising us is, man, live in this faith and this hope and this love and be ready to um, experience God when he comes. And so this, this armor tells us to put on. The breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the, for the hope of salvation. The idea is, okay, we're in the end times sort of now. So Jesus said, like basically the, the New Testament describes the end times as like everything from when Jesus went back to be with the Lord and to when he returns to us again. We're in the end times now. So how do we live? We put on our armor, right? We're going to do battle. It implies battle, the idea of armor. Put on your armor. Um, let's do this thing. Let's fight in this thing. We have to protect ourselves so, so as this battle rages between light and darkness, and what constitutes truth and reality, as we gird ourselves up in this armor, what does that armor look like? Faith, hope, and love, right? Think of the world around us, the world getting darker and going further and further away from God's intention for us as human beings. The world gets dark. Ideologies get stronger, right? Um, we see the government feeling more and more oppressive to us, right? Everything's getting harder, right? We see Hollywood's agenda growing more and more sinister, it feels to us. We look at the public school system and we think, what are they going to force our kids into down the road? And so Paul's saying, put on the armor, right? When all these things happen, put on the armor. And what does the armor look like? It doesn't look like politics. It doesn't look like fighting back. It doesn't look like, what does it look like? Put on faith and hope and love. And when you put on and you live in this armor of faith and hope, and love, he says, when you do that, that is the armor, the protection that you need against everything that's coming now and in the end times. And when you do that, you're living in a way that's ready to welcome Jesus in. And so that faith, the idea of, man, I see who Jesus is. I see that he's laid his life down for me and that, that through his death, he's offered this sacrifice that allows me to receive forgiveness for my sins, that, like, that gives me this reconciliation with God. I can live in wholeness knowing that, that I was not good enough, but I was never meant to be. Jesus is that faith connects us there. It's our allegiance that connects us to Jesus. And he's saying, man, live your life in the knowledge of that faith in Jesus where you're tied to him above all else. Live in that. That is the thing that protects you. The, the hope, the idea that like, man, this hope of salvation that at the end of it all, Jesus comes back, right? And the world will get darker and darker and we're going um, to be caught up in that. But at the end of it all, he comes back and he fixes everything that's wrong in the world. And let that hope 
be a thing that drives us, that doesn't let us get pessimistic, that doesn't let us become alarmist, that doesn't lead us to becoming outraged all the time, but just that hope that Jesus is coming back and that is where hope ultimately is found. Let that hope be the protection that you have. And of course, the love, right? Putting on love like armor, this idea of we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says that's the most important commandment, right? And the second one is just like it, of loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so we live our lives. If we really want to be ready for when things really get crazy and everything goes down, make sure you've got that faith in Jesus set up, right? Make sure your hope is in the Lord coming and not in anything else. And make sure that you're just living a life of love. And if you do those three things, Paul says, you're ready for the end. And so he ends it like this. In verses 9 and 10. He ends it, uh, actually, 9, 10, and 11, actually. Yeah, and so he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So here is the reminder. And he's saying, again, so now he's, he's warned against the, the sudden destruction that's coming, right? And he mentions God's wrath, but what is he saying? He's speaking to this little church in encouragement. And he's looking at this little church and he says, look, this isn't what God wants for you. This is what God has planned for you. He's not trying to get you into this place of wrath. What has God destined for you? It's to obtain this salvation for the Lord. It's not this wrath. And so again, the invitation is there. And he's saying to this little church, just like I want to say to you, be assured, be confident, rest in that allegiance, that faith, that trust in the Lord. And let me just also step back and just say, look, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're hearing these harsh words, right, these, this strong warning, you're hearing it and you're not quite sure, like, where am I at in this? Let me just say, this is an invitation, right? Take Paul's invitation and, and see who Jesus is and embrace him. And just do that wrestle, do that, that, that business. Even if your mind is not all the way sure, do that business. And man, I'm, I am here and would love to talk to any of you about it, whether you've been around the church forever or if this is your first time ever around church, um, I would love to process that with you. And so here's this, this promise of hope. And look at what he says. Anytime there's a statement, like in verse 10, it talks about Jesus died for us so that, okay? This is a huge, important statement. Why did Jesus die? He's saying Jesus died for us. Why? So that, he says in verse 10, we who are, uh, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So why did Jesus die? He died so that whether we um, are awake, meaning we're still living on, like he talked about last week, or whether we are asleep, just like he talked about last week, those who have died, right? Either way, Jesus died so that either way, whether we live or whether we die, we get to be with him. And I think it's remarkable. This isn't just human beings, like, wishful thinking, right? Like, man, I, I just really want to be with God where he is. This is actually God speaking to us, right? And it's him saying, I sent my son to die so that whether you live or whether you die, you get to be with me. Like, it's God saying, it's his desire, an expression of his desire that he wants to be with us. And who are we that God would want to be with us? I don't know, but that's what he's telling us, is that he wants to be with us. We are the prize he gets at the end of it all, and it's a beautiful, beautiful reminder for us. And so Paul is um, referencing this expectation, this hope, this longing. Um, you know, I just think of pregnant women living like at least their last trimester in this constant state of readiness. Everything's ready to go. We're watching. Paul's saying, do the same thing. But readiness looks like faith, hope, and love. And here's the point. Okay, here's why Paul gave us any end times instruction at all. The point is in verse 11. Therefore, Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing, okay? So again, just like we saw last week, he does, specifically does not say, therefore, debate one another and prove one another wrong, right? He does not say that. No, what does he say? 
encourage one another, build one another up, right? Just as you are doing. It's this reminder that, man, if we're going to be this like end times savvy church, this church that knows what's going on with that, what will it look like? It it will look like we're a bunch of people that are just encouraging each other. The Lord's coming back. We don't know when, we don't know how, but he's going to do it. And man, be encouraged in that. Build each other up. Let's invest in each other. Let's keep building this beautiful community. Paul says to them, just like you're doing now, and man, I can echo that from a full heart that has seen so much of what this church family has meant to me and and to so many other people in our community and to each other. Man, you guys are doing this. Let's keep building into each other. And man, let's just live lives where we're just so excited to see the Lord return. So we're going to continue to um, sing and, um, and celebrate this. And I just want to invite you to um, just pray, reflect with me for just a minute as we um, prepare to like say these words to the Lord in song. Lord, I, I am so thankful for a reminder like this. Um, Lord, so often you say things, you speak of the end in a way that, that feels harsher than what I would naturally say myself. And yet, Lord, I I just, I see the love in this passage. I see the invitation, and I pray for every single person here, Lord, that we would all just see the invitation in these words and that we would respond. Lord, may we see in this the, the words that you spoke, that you, you actually want to be with us forever. That is your desire. It's, it's a beautiful reminder, and I pray that we would embrace it. Lord, I pray for all of us that we'd be living these lives shaped by faith, hope, and love, that when things get dark around us, that the the strategy, um, the lifestyle, the clothing that we would put on would be faith and hope and love. Lord, may, us, may, may, may we as a people, Lord, may we just embrace that deeper, deeper, not looking for more complexity, but just the simplicity of faith, hope, and love. Connect us in those things. And Lord, I pray that you'd prepare us now for hearts that are just longing to see you in all your glory. People with a high view of who you are people that just fall on our knees and worship you because you are so big, you are so beautiful, you are so good. Thank you that we can be your people. Thank you that we can celebrate that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.